the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. When a hundred years has passed and your work is done, the temple's built, the walls have been rebuilt, a hundred years have passed, a whole other generation has come and gone. And the tendency is for things that are important to get forgotten. In a hundred years' time, if you aren't intentional about passing down to the next generation the values and the principles, and in this context, the commands of God, you end up having another generation that has raised up, been raised up, without shared common values and principles and truths. What is your relationship like with God? Are you daily spending time reading and studying God's Word and in prayer? Or have you allowed yourself to be so comfortable as a Christian that you're becoming complacent and unconcerned about the things that God cares about? In today's message, Pastor Gary will caution you to be careful not to become so spiritually apathetic and morally lazy like the Israelites that your future generations don't share the same common values as you do. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Malachi as he begins his message, ministry, marriage, and money. Malachi rounds out the 12 minor prophets. A little background here before we read and and dig out this book together. He's the last of the minor prophets. The 12 final books of the Old Testament are minor prophets because these are prophets that God sent to the people, but their messages were much shorter. That's why they're called minor prophets. Uh, Malachi's name is pronounced in Hebrew, Malachi. Malachi means my messenger. And there's nothing we know about his life. He doesn't give us any insight about his heritage or anything about his background. And we don't have anything else in the rest of the Bible to, to inform us about his background. So, that, so we know nothing really about this prophet. He ministered around 400 B.C. And he ministered to the people of Judah in Jerusalem after they had come back from their 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And... Malachi is not just the last of the minor prophets, he's, he's the last of the prophets until the New Testament, and he follows, chronologically in your Bibles, he follows the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. So the books of Ezra and Nehemiah give you details about when the exiles returned to their homeland, rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem, and then Malachi comes about a hundred years, on average, about a hundred years 
after the Jews had been back in the homeland. So, so check this out. It's important to understand the temple has now been rebuilt, done. Haggai came, encouraged them to build the temple. Temple's been rebuilt. Haggai's gone. Nehemiah came, encouraged the people to build up the city walls around Jerusalem. They've done that. Nehemiah's gone. And now about a hundred years have passed and here comes Malachi and he is sent by God uh, to challenge them. Because when a hundred years has passed and your work is done, the temple's built, the walls have been rebuilt, a hundred years have passed, a whole other generation has come and gone. And the tendency is for things that are important to get forgotten. In a hundred years' time, if you aren't intentional about passing down to the next generation the values and the principles, and in this context, the commands of God, you end up having another generation that has raised up been raised up without shared common values and principles and truths. And so Malachi is being sent to the people because they've grown spiritually apathetic and morally lazy. It's what happens. You know, human nature, human tendency is you get complacent, you get lazy because you get comfortable. And after the temple's been rebuilt, the walls of the city have been rebuilt, the people are now sitting back, a whole other generation has come and gone, and people don't share the same common values and principles that they once did. So God sends Malachi to the people to challenge them about their spiritual apathy and their moral laziness. And so uh, they're, they're, they're unconcerned about matters that should matter. And so God is going to speak now to uh, the people here through the prophet Malachi. It's interesting that there are a total of 55 verses uh, in the book of Malachi. When you, when you add up all the verses, 55 verses in Malachi, 47 out of the 55 verses are first person spoken by the Lord. So Malachi writes very little commentary, almost zero uh, he is speaking here firsthand, uh, the Lord just speaking uh, through him. And as a result of their spiritual apathy and their moral laziness, God's going to call them out on a few things. And every time he does, the people ask questions. Now, they don't ask questions because they want to learn. Like, tell us more, Lord. What does this mean? They ask questions every time God calls them out on something as basically sarcastic denials of what he's saying. So it, it's, you'll see it as, as I walk you through it. Look here in your Bibles, Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. They're going to ask eight questions in response to what God says, and every time these are sarcastic denials. Chapter 1, verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Further down, verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? Verse 7, you offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? Go to chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 13. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Verse 14. Yet you say, for what reason? Go further down to verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? Go to chapter 3. Verse 6. 
For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? Verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? One more, still there in chapter 3, look at verse 13. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? Eight questions. I'll summarize them. They ask him, in what way have you loved us? In what way have we despised your name? In what way have we defiled you? For what reason do you not receive our offering? In what way have we wearied you? In what way shall we return to you? In what way have we robbed you? What have we spoken against you? And these are all sarcastic denials of what God is saying to them. And so God's going to address them in these ways. And he's going to point out, here's what's going on. You become spiritually apathetic. You become morally lazy about some things. And he's going to challenge them. And when he challenges them, he basically is going to take all of these eight questions and you can categorize them into three main categories. Here they are, ministry, marriage, and money. When you look at what he addresses in their lives, the things that they've become apathetic about, unconcerned about, They can fall in these categories, ministry, marriage, and money. I can't help but, you know, as I read through these questions, I, I, you know, I use tone to suggest what's going on here. They They were being childish. I can't help but read these questions and think how childish of them to be asking these questions like this, sarcastic denials of of God, very childish of them. And it reminds me of the story about this lady who was about to give birth to twins, and they knew in advance it was going to be a boy and a girl. And uh, she and her husband couldn't figure out what to name the babies. And so they just said, you know, we don't know what to name them. So she, the, the woman who was ready to give birth, turns to her brother and, and, and says, why don't you pick out names? We don't care. Just pick out names. And so she goes in for delivery. And after the C-section is over, her brother comes to visit her in her room, and as she's recovering, she says, well, I'm just curious now, what names did you pick? What name did you pick for the girl? He said, I picked the name Denise. She says, that's a beautiful name. I love that. Good job, bro. And he says, thanks, sis. And then she says, now, what did you name the boy? And with this childish grin on his face, he said, I named him Denephew. (laughs) You'll get it on the way home. Denise, Denephew, it was her brother. Anyway, all right. Childish, I know, childish. But anyhow, we're going to talk about these three categories. The first one is ministry. And when we talk about ministry, what we're talking about, God calls them out on the fact that they have been neglecting their ministry to the Lord. Now, a lot of times when we talk about ministry, we think that ministry is something that clergy do, something like I'm doing right now, or something that missionaries do on the mission field. And that is ministry, but that's not all that ministry means. First of all, we all have ministry. Every single one of us have ministry. And the second thing that is important to realize is that ministry happens both horizontally and vertically. It happens horizontally when we minister to one another and serve one another and love one another in the name of Jesus. That's ministry that happens horizontally. But ministry also can happen vertically in terms of how we love the Lord and how we serve the Lord and how we honor the Lord, how we worship the Lord. That's ministry that happens vertically. That's what God is calling out here among the people. They have lost their vertical ministry. They have been careless and neglectful concerning their devotion to God. And one of the things that God points out to illustrate this 
is here in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. What they are doing is that they're bringing defective animals to the temple to sacrifice. Now, this was back in the day when animals were still sacrificed, pointing towards the cross. Jesus would eventually die for the sins of the world. He would be the ultimate and final lamb to take away the sins of the world. But up until Jesus Christ was revealed, God made a gracious provision in the Old Testament that if you would sacrifice an animal on behalf of your family, on behalf of your life, an innocent animal on behalf of sinful lives, one animal at least for a family of ten, Uh, then I will receive you temporarily as righteous by faith, looking toward the cross, animal sacrifice, something now that's been replaced since Jesus died on the cross. But in that day, they were to bring their animal, their lamb, to the sacrifice as an atonement for their sins, a temporary atonement. And what they were doing, God says, is you're bringing me all the blind lambs that you have, all the lame lambs, all the sick lambs. Here in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, he says, you offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. Verse 8, and when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? He says, offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? In other words, God says, you bring it to me, animals that you wouldn't even give to your governor. You'd be embarrassed to show up at the governor's mansion and say, here, I brought you these lambs. Enjoy. Because what you're bringing me are these, they're, they're blind and they're lame. They're sickly. You know, and they, God's like, that's what you're bringing me. He's like, this is what you're bringing me. All your leftover garbage from the flock. You're just like cleaning out the flock and deciding instead of bringing me the cream of the crop, you're going to bring me the worst of the flock. And this is what they were doing. Now, it reminds me in a similar way. Years ago, years ago, we used to have once in a while canned food drives to help restock the pantry of of local, uh, you know where I'm going with this? Yeah. And so, you know, uh, to help out the homeless here in the area. And so, you know, we'd have canned food drives and all of a sudden we'd see what people would bring in. Now, this is years ago, so I'm not trying to shame anybody. I'm just saying. You're, people would bring in, like, like, they'd go through their pantry, and they're like, okay, what can we give the homeless that we don't want anymore? Spam. And they pull spam off the shelf. Why they even bought it to begin with, I have no idea. And then they'd bring in, like, cream of mushroom soup that was expired, or, like, rancid peanut butter. And then, like, they'd load it up, take it to the church, and think they've done God and the homeless a, a gift. They, they, they haven't done anybody a favor. They brought their leftover stuff. They brought their... You know, all of this stuff and thinking that somehow the homeless won't, won't mind. Wait, 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 wait. Remember how Jesus said, when you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. When we don't give God our best, the best of our abilities, the best of our time, the best of our talents, the best of our resources, we are in effect offering him our leftover stuff. And God says about them, you've grown complacent and apathetic towards me. You're not offering me the best of what I've given you. Well, another way that they neglected ministry to God was in the way that they spoke of him. Instead of praising him with their words, they were complaining about him with their words. Still there in chapter 1, look at verse 13. He says, your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? He calls him out. He says, 
I've overheard you saying it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed for those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. And so their complaint against God is that God is too harsh and his commandments are too hard. God, you're too harsh. Your commandments are too hard. Here we are. We've been trying to keep your ordinances. We've been, you know, trying to honor you and obey you. And, and, and here the whole while, people who don't even love you, wicked people are getting by scot-free. This isn't fair. Why should we even obey your ordinances when we watch other people who don't even love you seem to get away with stuff? And so why are we even obeying you anymore? And so, so they dishonor God with their words instead of praising him and honoring him. They say about him that he's harsh and his commandments are hard. And it's important for us to take this to heart because we can sometimes do the same thing. Can I just say to you that when you look at what wicked people seem to get away with, this is what we we think when we evaluate the world and we look at how we try to honor God and then we look at other people who have no intention of honoring God and we're like, how come things seem to be going so well for them and they seem to get away with stuff? Listen, People who live for this world may have short-term gains, but they will experience long-term consequences. In contrast, Christians who live for the Lord may experience sometimes short-term consequences, but we will be rewarded with long-term gains. This is what Paul meant in Romans 8.18 when he said, I consider that my present sufferings some of our short-term consequences, are not worth comparing to the glories that await me in Christ Jesus, the long-term gains. If you keep your eyes focused on just the short-term, you will always be disappointed. But if you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and you persevere in life, knowing that your ultimate reward is kept in heaven for you for all eternity, then you will always be content no matter what the circumstances. You lose sight of eternity, you will be depressed looking at the short term. So don't compare your life to the people who don't want to live for the Lord because they might experience short-term gains, but ultimately they will experience long-term consequences. We, on the other hand, may experience short-term consequences, but long-term gains. Keep your perspective right. Make sure you're looking at the ultimate prize. The second category that he has issue with uh, concerning their lives is marriage. It's not marriage itself, it's the fact that they don't want to be married, that they are engaging in casual, frivolous divorces, and God calls them out on the fact that they have just become apathetic about the sacredness of the bond of marriage, that they are not living in a way that honors God in terms of marriage, they are dishonoring God because they are quick to divorce. Now, In talking about this subject, I obviously want to exercise grace and tenderness uh, because divorce is not only something that has affected almost all of us, either directly or indirectly, but I also want to talk about this tenderly because, honestly, divorce is like a death. And I want to speak tenderly to those who have gone through a divorce as much as I would speak tenderly to someone who has experienced a death in the family. It's just that difficult. It's, it's that hard. And yet, at the same time, it, it's important for me to point out, as Malachi says it here, speaking uh, on behalf of the Lord, that it is one issue, divorce, 
about which God says he hates. I mean, that's the word that is used here. He hates. Now, I'm going to point it out to you, but before I say further, let me just also add, divorce is not the unpardonable sin, as some people want to make it out to be. Um, But it is something that grieves God, and we need to understand why. And we need to take to heart these things because, again, when people read the Bible and they say, well, it's a bunch of old stories many centuries ago, true, but it is timeless truth. And here we are living in a day when there's no-fault divorce, a very casual approach to marriage and the sacredness of it, and we need to kind of recalibrate and we need to make sure as Christians that we're honoring God in this area of marriage because, unfortunately, the divorce rate in the church is no better than the divorce rate outside the church. And something's wrong with that. Because of all people, we as Christians should learn what does it mean to stay committed in marriage? What does it mean to honor God? What does it mean to keep our oath even when it hurts? And so marriage is something that God has instituted, and He wants us to honor marriage. In honoring God, we honor Him in the process. And when we go through divorces without biblical grounds, I'll qualify that in a minute, We dishonor God, and so it's important for us ourselves to look at this and say, okay, what is God saying to us? Now, if you look here in your Bibles at chapter 2, look at verses 14 to 16. Chapter 2, verse 14, yet you say, for what reason? And he says, because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Now, some of your Bibles say you have broken faith, some of your translations. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Notice that, covenant. This is not just a commitment. This is a covenant. This is a sacred bond that God has implemented that we need to understand before God is a covenant. Verse 15, but did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit, which is what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, a father shall leave his Uh, A man shall leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It is from the Hebrew word duvak. Duvak is the root word for glue in Hebrew. We are to be glued together as husband and wife. That's God's intent. Did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously. Let none break faith with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. He hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously, that you do not break faith. Now, this last part about covering your garment with violence, in those days, a marriage would end with the husband taking his garment, his cloak, and wrapping it around his wife, his new bride, and it was symbolic of, I am covering you now with my love, my commitment, my devotion. God is saying when we divorce without biblical grounds, we are doing the opposite, and instead of covering her with love and companionship and protection and devotion, we are now basically uncovering her, and it's a violent thing. And so God puts high value on marriage because this is something that he has implemented. Now, why is it that God hates divorce? And the second question is, are there some grounds uh, on which divorce might be permissible? So let me answer the first question first. Why does God hate divorce? God hates divorce because marriage was intended by God to be a display of God's love and grace and faithfulness toward us. 
So marriage is to express God's love, his grace, and his faithfulness towards us. And when we come into a marital union, ideally, we are supposed to be mirroring that to our spouse. The warnings and prophecies found in the Minor Prophet books can be intense, but they remind you of one thing. God is patient. He doesn't exact judgment on those who have sinned immediately. Instead, God shows mercy. He gives you ample time to come to Him in repentance, handing the wrongs you've committed over to Him and letting His love restore you. Because of that love for His creation, God sent His only Son to die on the cross in your place, taking your sins with Him. Jesus' death provides you the opportunity at a new life and forgiveness for all your wrongs. Are you ready to come to Jesus in repentance today and receive this grace? We'd like to talk more with you, so please give us a call at 703-771-1500. That's 703-771-1500. We also want to invite you to join us for church at Cornerstone Chapel. We're meeting each Sunday in person at 8.30 and 11.45 a.m., as well as on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Visit cornerstoneconnection.cc to get all the information you need, along with directions to our campus. If you're not able to be with us in person, we do offer each service online as well. Again, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc to connect. Thanks for tuning in today for Pastor Gary's message, and we hope you'll join us again right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul, that you've got no place to go, but still you know.